Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, October the 18th, 2023. A couple of days ago, at the beginning of the week, we did an interesting show with one of America's leading financial journalists, Bethany McLean, on what the COVID pandemic reveals about the both the strengths and the weaknesses of the American healthcare system and it, more broadly, its capitalist system. She was uh, a very entertaining and erudite guest. She's the co-author of an interesting new book, The Big Fail, uh, what the pandemic revealed about who America protects and who it leaves behind. She wrote it with Joe Nassara, another very distinguished American journalist who has worked with many publications, including the New York Times and Bloomberg. Um, but I titled uh, the show The Big Fail or a Big Success because it wasn't entirely clear to me whether or not the American response to COVID was this unambiguous um, big fail. So we got Joe now on the show to add to our conversation. Uh, Joe, the book is called, of course, The Big Fail. I'm guessing books like The Big Fail succeed more than books called The Big Success. But, I don't know about that. You do, don't do, think do, people do. like people like misery these days, Joe? Don't they? I know Michael Lewis has made a a whole lot of money uh, writing about people who who do well. Oh, well, you may be right, but um, is the book an unambiguous, un unadulterated critique of 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 the American response to the pandemic, or are there some bright spots? Well, the, the one big bright spot is uh, Operation Warp Speed, um, which I'm sure Bethany must have mentioned, which is, uh, you know, getting a vaccine up and running and, and, and getting the manufacturing up and running uh, in less than a year. Uh, that, that, is a, that is a triumph. And it's also a bipartisan triumph in the sense that most of the people, most of the scientists and engineers um, who were recruited for it were not Trump supporters. Uh, and it's also one of the very, very few things that Trump himself just kind of kept his hands off and just allowed it to happen, uh, which was also pretty unusual. So I would say that's an un unambiguous success. I think there were some small successes here and there. You know, the state of Rhode Island, the smallest state in the nation, uh, the governor, Gina Raimondo, uh, even though she was in a blue state, was adamant that the schools open uh, in September uh, because she had seen the data that showed what a disaster it was for kids to either having remote learning or, or dropping out of schools entirely. So that's a small success. Um, Ron DeSantis's original um, response to the, to the pandemic in Florida is, is a small success, uh, more than a small success. I, he also believed that it was wrong to just shut down the, the, the state, the economy, uh, the stores, the, the schools. He just, he just, he did it for three weeks just because he felt pressured by the president, uh, and that was it. And uh, Florida, all in all, uh, did pretty well during the pandemic. And finally, I would say I would point to San Francisco as a success. Um, they were very mask and lockdown oriented, but I don't really think that was a difference maker for them. I think the real difference maker was um, 
that they had an infrastructure, they had a public health infrastructure left over from the AIDS crisis. And there was a degree of trust in San Francisco between people and, and, and their public health officials that didn't exist elsewhere. And almost as importantly, the city owned the largest nursing home in America. Uh, so rather than it being run by private equity guys who were just trying to uh, suck as much money out of it as possible, they had enough staff and they were able to do all the right things. And this is a place that had over 750 residents. And to this day, to this day, only 11 have died. That's quite a considerable list. You started with Operation Warp Speed, Joe. We did a, a show a couple of years ago with Brendan Burrell, who wrote a book about the what he claims, at least, is the inside story. It was a rather Michael Lewis-style story of the success of this. The warp speed thing was it is a big deal, isn't it? I mean, America uh, led the world in that. In that, no, 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 it's a it's a huge deal, and you know the mRNA technology, uh, getting that to act as a virus, excuse me, as a vaccine, was actually the least difficult part of it. The hard part of it, not that it wasn't all hard, but the, the really hard part of it was getting the manufacturing capacity up and running to handle millions and millions of doses of vaccine by Pfizer and Moderna. And don't forget, Moderna was a startup company, so it really had no manufacturing capability whatsoever. And without the federal government, this would never have happened. So um, uh, I think people tend to focus more on the creation of the vaccine, but the manufacturing uh, capacity is hugely important part of the story. Yeah, and I know you and Bethany talk about the logistical side of that uh, in, in some detail in the book. We are talking with Jonah Sarah, the author or co-author of The Big Fail, a new book about the pandemic and how it failed America or how the American system failed uh, failed American citizens. We spent the, last, the first few minutes talking about the success. So, Joe, let's you, you've acknowledged that there were some successes, particularly uh, warp speed, which reflects both the logistical and technological and financial innovation of the American system, particularly the government system. Where do we begin with the fail? Where would you start? Um, I, I put it into, I, the way I've been thinking about it is I put it into two buckets. One is the bucket of capitalism, um, which is trends that, that, that took place over the course of 40 and 50 years, uh, such as globalization, uh, such as the rise of private equity, and such as the, um, the, the changing of the hospital system from fundamentally nonprofit to fundamentally maximizing shareholder value. That's one bucket, all of which had bad uh, consequences during the pandemic. The other bucket is the public health bucket, uh, which has to do with uh, lockdowns and uh, masks and other mitigation measures. And here, you know, the problem is partly that some of these measures were misguided or wrong, and partly that the government uh, and both the state and the federal level never really uh, was willing to be straight with the American people about, about um, how much was really unknown. So, you know, the favorite phrase, I'm sure you know this, in the U.S. was follow the science. We're going to follow the science. But 
what people didn't realize is in many cases, there is no science. There is no science behind lockdowns. There's never been a study. Only now are people starting to do studies about whether, whether it worked or not. Um, uh, ditto masks, you know, you're seeing studies now, some say that masks work, some say that masks don't work. There's no definitive answer. Um, uh, and I think the country would have been so much better off if uh, Anthony Fauci had gotten up there and said, you know, we don't know. We don't know all the answers here. We're trying things that we think will work. They might not. And if they don't, we'll shift gears. Um, I think that would have uh, created a degree of confidence that uh, was utterly lacking uh, as the pandemic wore on. I'm actually surprised, Joe, that you, you've called out DeSantis as someone who achieved something. And you've, you've noted that um, Anthony Fauci was guilty of, of not acknowledging what he didn't know. How does Fauci come out of this? I mean, he's obviously a controversial figure now for political reasons. But in overall terms, what kind of grade does he get in your mind? Um, in my mind, he does not get that great a grade. Bethany's, Bethany's position is, you know, if the federal government thought he was, if the president thought he was doing a good, lousy job, they should have just fired him or sent him back to his, you know, little lab at, at the National Institute of Health. My big problem with Fauci was his utter certainty that he was right and everybody else was wrong. So to take an example that's not lockdowns, vaccines. When the vaccine was first uh, available, right at the beginning, both he and uh, others in the public health community, uh, such as Rachel Walensky, the head of the CDC, they made claims for it that were just not sustainable. Uh, you know, they said basically, if you got the vaccine, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't um, transmit the virus, and it would, you know, it, you wouldn't get the virus. Neither of those statements are true. In fact, as we discovered during Omicron, millions of Americans who've been vaccinated got the disease, got COVID, and, uh, and millions of them spread it to other people. Uh, the, the truth is, the vaccine, by and large, kept you out of the hospital. You know, you, you didn't die. So your COVID was much less uh, powerful in your body than it would have been without the vaccine. Had they said that, you know, people would have had a more realistic appraisal of what was going on instead of when everybody started to get COVID who had been vaccinated. It's like, oh, my goodness, the government's lied to us. The government's lied to us. They said X, Y, Z, and it turned out not to be true. Uh, you know, how hard is it just to tell the truth? How hard it is to tell the truth, Joe. You've been writing about that all your life. And everybody knows it's really <laughs> hard, especially for politicians. So we've got two bookends here in terms of the way in which COVID was presented, I think, to the public. On the one hand, you had at least the early Trump argument that it's just a, a serious kind of flu. And on the other hand, you had, it seemed at least implicitly, uh, the idea that it was akin to a mass killer like the Spanish flu, the Spanish influenza after the First World War. Which of those are true, do you think? Or, 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 or is it somewhere in between? Well, if you were 75 years old 
it was like the Spanish flu. If you were 15, it was like, you know, catching a cold for the most part. <laughs> and so here's one of the things that tended to get lost in, 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 in the um, uh, it, it, people didn't really realize for a very long time, which is that it, the older you get, the more the, 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 your chances of getting a serious case of COVID, even dying, rise geometrically, geometrically. So a person who's 80 has something like a 5,000% higher chance of getting a serious case of COVID than somebody who's 10 years old. Now, in the Spanish flu, that was different. During the 1918, the, the, it killed uh, indiscriminately people who were 20, people who were 50, people who were 10, people who were 70. This, this, uh, this pandemic really, really uh, feasted on the elderly. And the key to success, if you can call it success, was to protect the elderly as long as possible until you had a vaccine. And some places did that better than other places. New York did it horribly, but um, uh, there, are, there are amazing statistics out there, amazing statistics um, that show in some states, excuse me, that show that in some states, you know, 60% of the deaths took place in nursing homes. I want to get to nursing homes, but why even at I mean, it's easy to say it now, and it's not controversial, and particularly you've written this book on it. But had we had had we been having this conversation in 2021, you're you're a veteran of online flame wars, um, Joe. <laughs> Someone would have accused you of something, being a mass murderer of one kind or another. Why? And we can't. I mean, obviously, Trump has some degree of responsibility here. But why did it become so radically politicized that whatever you said about this disease, you were accused of being a communist or a fascist or this and that? And that may explain why Fauci and the others were so tentative. Well, I mean, the country was polarized. You know, the country was already polarized. So then you have this president, this polarizing president saying, oh, nothing to see here, folks, no big deal. And so all of his 47% of the country that follows him says, oh, nothing to see here. And people in the blue states say, oh, this is a terrible thing. We have to go do something. We have to protect ourselves. We have to lock down. <clears throat> a lot of the governors like Andrew Cuomo and Newsom positioned themselves as governors listening to science as opposed to the president who was not listening to science. And then when the president said, well, maybe you should just, you know, swallow some bleach and that'll take care of it. <laughs> you, know, this, you know, that was this moment where people said, I, I'm just not gonna listen to anything this guy says, period, about this. I'm just, I'm just not gonna go there. So you had this already polarized society and then every little thing that, and then, you know, you had these moments a great moment, which I do mention in the book, but I, I, I saw in real time and actually wrote some columns about it, was when Florida reopened its beaches, uh, which happened pretty quickly. Uh, and, you know, there's these photographs of lots of people on the beach. And, you know, it looks like they're pretty close together. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But, but, um, yeah, I remember that photo. I remember yeah. my wife saying to me, oh, those people in Florida, they're such idiots. Right. And it turns out, you know, 
being on the beach is not much of a super spreader. Being in a, a conference room in Boston is a super spreader. So, you know, and, and the flames that those people were getting on the internet, uh, on Twitter especially, it was, you know, Flor hashtag Florida morons, hashtag death Santas instead of DeSantis. And um, the right, the, the red states got their backs up, said, you know, screw you, blue state liberals. Anything you say, we're not going to do. And by the time the vaccine came out, it was just, um, it was absurd. And it, it reached the point of absurdity because the vaccine truly does work. But uh, by then, you, you, yeah, go you ahead. Mentioned, you mentioned that this hit old people dramatically more than young people, although there were always stories of young people dying. Does, has anyone done any research on whether it hit Dems or Republicans more or less? Uh, the, uh, there is some research on that. Um, Nate Silver, uh, uh, at five, uh, he used to be at 538. I don't know what the hell he's at now, but Nate Silver, who's one of the you know better statisticians in the United States, um, he did some work that showed that until there was a vaccine, the death rates in blue states and red states were more or less the same. And that once the vaccine was available, the the red state deaths were much higher than the blue state deaths. Now, honestly, I haven't looked into this myself, but he's a pretty uh, he has a lot of credibility, and um, uh, that rings um, that makes sense to me. Although I'm guessing more old people vote for Republicans than Democrats, but it's an interesting um, it's an interesting question. We are speaking with the great. Joe Nacera, I've always been a big fan of your work, Joe, especially at the New Thank York you. Times. He has a new book out, which he co-wrote with Bethany McLean. They're a team. They've done other books together. Uh, everyone will be familiar with All the Devils Are Here, another important book. It's just out. Um, and uh, I want to thank our sponsor, uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. All our guests will get an annual free subscription. I'm going to run a short ad and then we'll be back with Joe to talk more broadly about his first category, the bucket of capitalism, what he described and what the COVID crisis reflected about that. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back with Joe Nacera, the co-author of The Big Fail in about 32 and a half seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Joe Nacera, the co-author of The Big Fail. Joe, uh, at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about breaking The Big Fail down into two buckets, public health bucket, which we've talked about in the first half, and then the bucket of the broader structural issues of capitalism. So I'm assuming this was the biggest of the big fails when it came to COVID. Is that fair? Uh, I think that's I think that's more than fair. Um, 
I started to think about this when the PPE shortage um, struck, which, which happened, you know, really very, very quickly within a couple of weeks of uh, the pandemic hitting the US. I probably think the same thing happened in England. Um, and, you know, I started to do two things. One, where was the PPE going? Who got it? Who had it? What was happening to it? And two, why was the shortage happening? Uh, the answer to the first question is pretty fascinating. It, 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 it went to a black, black market. It, it became this huge black market for protective personal equipments like, like gowns, like nitro gloves, uh, and like masks. Um, and lots of people diving in thinking they could get rich. Very few of them did, if any. Um, and, but the other issue, the globalization issue, is, is America had outsourced all its PPE. It had none. It had nothing left except 3M, which made N95 masks, which were the gold standard, so they could still sell them um, uh, despite uh, their higher price. But they mostly sold them to uh, industrial companies for workers who, who, you know, dealt with asbestos and things like that. So, you know, you, you start to think about this and you start to look around and you realize, oh, it's not just PPE. We've, we've outsourced all sorts of important things. Uh, semiconductors, uh, you know, there was a car, there was a, it was a difficult to buy a car at a certain point in 2021 because you couldn't find any, um, uh, you couldn't find any, um, uh, sorry, my wife just bing, pinged me and I distracted me. Uh, <laughs> chips. I mean, wasn't the, the crisis with cars and, and many other hardware products, the issue of computer chips? Yeah, that's what I said. Semiconductor, semi chips. Yes. Semiconductor chips. Absolutely. That's, and, and China makes a lot of the low end chips that cars use. Uh, and you know, China, China, and a lot of these things, as, as, as shortages uh, emerged, the Chinese position was, we don't really care what the contract says. We need them for ourselves. So you might, the Cardinal Health might have a contract for masks with China, but those masks were being kept in China. So it, it was a lack of resiliency in the system. America had been, com American companies had become so hooked on lower prices as the be-all and end-all, which of course would help the share price, that they just forgot about the idea of what happens when the supply chain breaks down. They had never really thought about that and the pandemic forced But who had, Joe? I mean, it's, it's easy again in retrospect. Were there were German companies or? The Germans, uh, the German the Japanese companies or Korean companies, uh, Taiwanese companies, were they aware of this? Did they make precautions? Well, very few companies out very few countries outsource to the extent that america does i mean i mean uh, japan's a net exporter not a net not a net importer uh german germany does a remarkable job of balancing between the country's own resilience needs for resilience and uh it's it's export economy so there are countries that have that have done it well and few company few countries have uh, suffered quite as much overall as the U.S. Uh, as shortages piled up. Um, uh, you know, the the um, when this when that boat got stuck in the Suez Canal, 
which was costing the, the, the world economy something like $10 billion a day for about a month, a month and a half, you know, there were 60 or 70 boats eventually lined up outside the Los Angeles, the port of Los Angeles, couldn't get in um, because there were no truck drivers. <laughs> this was another form of lack of resilience. Uh, uh, truck drivers didn't make enough money to stay on the job during COVID, so they all quit. But what's your point there, that the market doesn't work? I mean, if, if, if truck drivers weren't making enough money, should they have been paid by the state? No, they shouldn't have been paid by the state. They, but the, you would think the companies would want would, would want a workforce that would stay and not quit at the first at the drop of a hat. I mean, I, I think the market mostly works. But, but what is the market? What is the market? If you, if you have a the idea, I mean, is it your view that the lowest price is the market and nothing else matters? That's not my view. But what you're observing or what you're critiquing was the global economic system. You, 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 you talk about outsourcing. And, and these companies were doing it not just for their, their share price, but for their bottom line, for their profitability, for better or worse. I'm not necessarily defending them. but Well, I mean, the share price and the bottom line are one and the same. If you don't have a good bottom line, you don't have a good share price. If you have Well, I, I don't know any company that acts against its own bottom line, do you? Well, it, again, it depends on what you mean by the bottom line. If, 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 it, if it is your view that not having anything in reserve so that when a hard time comes, your stock tanks because you don't have any goods, if that's your view of the bottom line, then yeah, you're yeah. right. I mean, if it was easy again in red, I mean, I'm not defending the, and you know a million times more about this than I do, but nobody expected this. It came completely out of the blue. The idea that the global supply chain would just freeze overnight, literally on March, 20th 2000 was unimaginable for anyone wasn't it did anyone make precautions very few very few what about the private healthcare system it seems to the u.s system is this weird alliance of, of the markets and public money what does what did the COVID experience reflect on American healthcare itself? How did it reflect on its profound weaknesses, its dysfunctionality? Right. Um, well, it it showed that no matter how fucked up you thought it was, it was actually more fucked up. That's what it showed. <laughs> um, so let me take let me take it in two two different ways. Uh, first is nursing homes. Um, uh, at a certain point around the year 2004 or so, a private equity firm started buying up nursing homes. Now, I know you'll recall that there was a time when private equity firms used to say that we're going to make your company better, smarter, leaner. Then you go back into the public markets and the stock will be higher and, and all will be well with the world. They didn't say that with nursing homes. They took over a nursing home. The first thing they would do is um, sell the real estate that the nursing home stood on. To a REIT. So now the nursing home has to pay $4 million a year in rent, uh, money that it had once been able to spend on the residents. Then the private equity firm would do a dividend recapitalization, where they would uh, basically pay themselves a giant dividend out of money that was supposed to go to the, the, the nursing home. Then they would cut staff. 
Um, uh, then they would uh, try to figure out a way to game the Medicare system. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, uh, when COVID came, nursing homes were unbelievably ill-equipped, um, except for that one in San Francisco. They were incredibly ill-equipped to handle the disaster. And, you know, you say the market, the market, the market. Well, my question is, you know, should nursing homes and hospitals be part of the market? Yeah, and especially given private equity and its um, attitude to its own responsibility, it sees no responsibility in a, in a public sense, does it? Oh, that's right. I mean, the way I describe it is the role of private equity in modern American society is to rape and pillage companies and then let them fall into bankruptcy while they walk away with their money. I guess that's a little harsh. I'm not sure it's that harsh, and although <laughs> what's interesting is I'm not sure whether there's much of a debate in the U.S. today about private equity. Joe, the, the subtitle of the book is what the pandemic revealed about who America protects and who it leaves behind. I think what your book reveals or reflects and, and, and what COVID reflects was the fact that America isn't really a free market system. It's a a weird state form of capitalism where the state protects the rich and powerful. Is, is there some truth to that? I, I, I don't really disagree with that. Um, even putting aside um, uh, the wealth created by the pandemic <coughs> for certain technology um, uh, captains like uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, United Air, the airlines got billions and billions of dollars, 25 billion, 30 billion in return for keeping people uh, employed. So they'd have these people on staff. They weren't running airplanes. I mean, obviously it was free money. Uh, the day that those that that deal expired, they'd lay everybody off and then they'd get a new round of money and bring everybody back. And, and so and, and but if you were a restaurant, if you were a restaurant, you got nothing. Even the uh, programs that were designed to help small businesses didn't really help restaurants because they were not structured the way you were supposed to be structured for that. So um, I, I, would, I would agree with you that, that America is skewed to the rich and powerful. American capitalism is skewed to help the rich and powerful, and that's just the way it is. We I, don't know if, I don't know if you've seen the movie Dumb Money. Uh, no, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I want to see it. But it's kind of a revenge fantasy of a little guy against the big guy. And I think its popularity really stems from this idea of, you know, we're finally getting back at those bastards. Although in, in political terms, that populism is often orchestrated and, and financed by the, the rich and powerful. We did a show <laughs> with Stephen um, Thrasher. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. He wrote a book called The Viral Underclass, another book about the way in which the pandemic benefited the wealthy and uh, punished the underclass. Uh, who were the losers? Um, you, you've noted, Joe, that the winners were private equity firms, uh, wealthy politicians, um, uh, airlines. Who lost here in, in, in the America of the pandemic? Uh, well, small the biggest losers were small businesses, um, even though uh there was money that went out to uh, small businesses uh 
it paled in comparison to when when I went, excuse me, it paled in comparison to what went to big businesses. And I don't know what it's like where you live, but where I live, I can hardly walk down a street without seeing three, four, five, six storefronts that had once been thriving, uh, now gone. So small, small businesses lost, um, you know, um, the, don't forget there was this whole category of people called quote unquote essential workers. You know, if you worked for DoorDash, you were an essential worker because you were, you know, basically uh, risking getting COVID so that the people who were lucky enough to be locked down uh, could get their uh, uh, salmon sushi to go. Um, so I would say, you know, uh, I think that's also part of the reason why there are so many uh, jobs being unfilled right now in the U.S. because, uh, you know, I think they just felt like suckers. And um, when they got a chance to say no, they said no. Joe, the news moves very fast. Many people have already forgotten about COVID. We're on to the next big thing this week. It's the Middle East. Next week, it'll be something else. What's been the legacy of what you call this big fail? How is America different in 2023 than it was in 2019 before COVID? Uh, that's, that's pretty hard. That's a pretty hard question uh, to answer. Um, you know, after 9-11, I was in New York during 9-11 and I was, uh, I heard so many people say, uh, it's never going to be the same again. Yeah. They always gonna, say that. Yeah. We're never going to tell any jokes again. We're never going to have any fun again, you know, and really airline security has been beefed up and not, not much else in terms of our daily lives. Um, uh, although certainly some wars abroad that have been, um, that have affected a lot of people. But I think the same thing will happen with this pandemic. It is being forgotten uh, pretty quickly. Certainly if there were, uh, if another pandemic came tomorrow, what would happen? How would the country react? I don't know the answer to that. I think there'd be a lot more uh, willingness to say, let's just ride it out. Or, you know, I'm not going to let myself be locked down. I, you know, I got, I got things to do. I think um, I, I just, it, it, it is painful to me to see the lack of, the la there's not even a commission. After every big thing, there's usually a commission, like there was yeah. after the financial crisis, to at least figure out what happened and figure out what worked and what didn't work. They're not even doing that. You can't even blame Donald Trump for that. Uh, they're all to blame. Uh, I, I just I, I, maybe I'm more cynical than I was before 2020. Maybe that's what you're hearing from me. And maybe a lot of other people feel the same way. Well, let's say you get Joe Biden's watching this or he's in Israel at the moment, so he probably is asleep. But let's say he watches this and thinks, oh, maybe Joe Nassara's right. We need a commission and I'm going to make him the chair. What would you address? What changes in America would you like to see? Do we need to have stricter laws about private equity and oh, its investments in healthcare? Is that number one on the list? That's super, super high on the list. Um, you know, I, I would say yes. That that's really high on the list. Let's let's make our medical system uh, work better and be less profit oriented because it's your health. I mean, that's it's like. 
it's your health and, and you don't want to scrimp on your health. And it's not like, you know, walking past one store to go to another one that has goods that, that are cheaper. It's just not like that. Um, so yes, that's, I would, I would definitely put the cr uh, clamps on private equity, not just in nursing homes, but across the board. I mean, you know what they're doing now, right? They're, 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 they're buying up autism practices, autism practices. Uh, it's unimaginable. Would you make it doing. illegal? Uh, I, I have a very simple solution to all of this, which is that um, if a private, I would pass a law that says if private equity wants to buy a company, they have to put the debt on its own balance sheet and not on the company's balance sheet. If you did that, the whole game would change. And one other thing, in addition to private equity, what other change would you make? What have we learned from COVID? What should we well, institutionalize? I, I would try to figure out a way to have a more resilient society. So there is a um, there's a movement called uh, friendshoring, which I'm not I'm sure you've heard of. Which is, you know, yes, we need to we need to keep outsourcing. We need to try and you know. Uh, Take compare, take advantage of various countries' competitive advantages. Yes, we need to do all that, but let's just do it with our friends. You know, let's let, let's focus on the, the the countries that are that are that are our that are our allies, rather than those that we are in increasing competition with. Uh, I, I think that makes sense. Uh, I think all business uh, with the Chinese. I would definitely, I mean, it's hard to move things out of China now because they have so much and no other country can, has the manufacturing capacity that they have. But I would, I would at least try to create some resilience in these other countries so that if China blocks us, we still have 10%, 20% coming from somewhere else. That, that I would definitely do. And I would also conduct real studies to figure out what mitigation measures work and what don't so that when the next time a virus comes along we have some idea what to do 